my brothers, sisters, um, it's good for us to be here, um, not just to listen, not just to see, um, but to be together at the feet of Christ. Uh, I suspect that uh, as Christ is also present, he feels that it's good that you are here. Um, for him, it's good that you are here, that he may reclaim your heart, your life, and your commitment. And I'm sure everybody uh, at this moment is praying, um, Lord, open my heart that I may be able to receive you and be transformed by your life, your teaching, your death, and resurrection. Uh, and that's why it is good for us to be here. Um, today, um, on the eve of Wednesday of Holy Pascha, the central theme um, is none other than Christ the Bridegroom, which is going to be my primary focus. Uh, so I'm not going to touch on the parables, uh, not the wedding of the king's son, not the ten virgins. Um, but I, you know, I had this image, um, like if a really holy person came into the church, let's say a living saint, uh, and Abuna said to the church, oh, there's this great saint among us, and he goes into the altar, and we're sitting, we're waiting um, and then just one of us goes and moves the veil a little bit and takes a peek inside to take a look. So we have a, about 15, 20 minutes together maybe. So what we want to do is just kind of move the veil a little bit and just take a look together. Um, so we want to move kind of quickly through things, um, but maybe just stop and reflect where we see something um, that is awe-inspiring. Um, we know that in the scripture, uh, God, and more specifically, the Lord Jesus Christ, um, is referred to as the bridegroom of Israel. Um, he's also understood to be the bridegroom of the church. Um, that means every single one of you sitting here, men and women. And so God has often referenced marriage as an illustration of his relationship with his people. Uh, in Isaiah, it's uh, quoted in this way, for your maker is your husband, the Lord of hosts is his name, and your redeemer is the Holy One of Israel, he is called the God of the whole earth. This is such a prominent theme in scripture that God does something which is really um, uh, provoking, which is he calls to one of his prophets, Hosea, and he commands him to go out and to marry a harlot. Um, and God does this precisely to illustrate his inner disposition in his relationship with us. We should always, um, when we hear the exposition that talks about the betrayal of Israel, we should know that you are Israel. I am Israel. Otherwise, you miss the whole message, right? Um, so he speaks um, to Hosea and tells him to go and to marry a harlot in order to illustrate to us 
the deep anguish it is for him to be in a relationship with unfaithful uh, or uh, people who reject his love. In fact, in Ezekiel, he says it this way. He says, you are an adulterous wife who takes strangers instead of your husband. And so um, the Old Testament has given us a little bit, uh, a glimpse into the personhood of God, that this God is not um, a removed persona who is detached from creation, but in fact, he speaks about the human person in a very, very uh, intimate way, which we'll look at together. Um, it's in the gospel that we first encounter um, Christ as the bridegroom. And I want to give you some historical context um, of Jewish tradition before we jump into uh, some uh, brief um, kind of images of Christ. Um, by the way, uh, thank you for putting this icon up. I'm going to refer to this icon from time to time uh, because at least in the Orthodox tradition, this icon is referred to as the icon of the bridegroom. When you think of a bridegroom, this is probably the last image that you would think of. And in fact, for some people, it would probably make more sense to call this icon the icon of the bridegroom. I mean, he looks more at ease. Um, he, um, he's sitting upon the earth. He sits in authority. Um, he seems collected, maybe even a little bit more joyful um, than this bridegroom. Uh, back to the point, the historical context. And so in Jewish tradition, first century Jewish tradition, um, if a man was going to get married, there's at least three things uh, that are going to happen. The first one is that the closest friends of the bridegroom uh, would take him and they would celebrate with him uh, a feast. And so they would sit and they would eat together and the closest friend to the bridegroom would instruct the bridegroom on how it is that he ought to love his wife and what is his husband duty. And the second thing that would happen is that there would be a great procession from the bridegroom's house to the bride's house. And this would be a joyful occasion, obviously. And the third thing that would happen is that the bridegroom would take the bride and they would go into the bridal chamber and there they would consummate the marriage. And out of this love would then proceed new life. A new child is then born. It's really important to understand this context because uh, this really does parallel the gospel narrative. And so we have Christ on Thursday who goes with his closest friends and there they share a meal. But instead of the closest friend instructing him, he instructs them 
on the duty of the bridegroom. And he says to them, take, eat, this is my flesh. Take, drink, this is my blood given for the new covenant. And it is him who speaks the language of love and instructs them on what it is to be in the spiritual marriage. And then obviously, there is the procession, uh, the way of the cross. And there at the foot of the cross is the new friend of the bridegroom. John the Baptist having been beheaded, uh, the new friend uh, sits in place of John the Baptist. And so there you have John the beloved and the woman. Uh, there you have an image of the first church. And there they stand, um, and we hear Christ says, uh, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now what's really interesting is that the word forsaken is used another time in scripture in the book of Genesis, where the Lord instructs, you shall forsake your father's house and go and cleave to your wife. So we could almost like imagine that the father would say, yes, you have forsaken my house and you have gone to uh, betroth your bride. And it is Christ then who leaves the father's house to cleave to his bride. And the father, in some ways, forsakes the son on Golgotha, so the, fa the son would then take his, um, or rather retrieve his harlot wife from the belly of hell in order to take her by the hand and return her to his father's house. There's a beautiful icon of the resurrection of Christ where He's taken Adam and Eve by the hand um, to his father's house. But also it's the words of the bridegroom on the cross where he says, it is finished. And this is uh, some of the saints' reflection on the cross is that the cross is the bridal chamber. It is the bedroom in which Christ enters with his wife and there the marriage is consummated. And so um, Christ on the cross um, consummates his love in this marriage and a new life proceeds from sacrificial love. The death of Christ is the consummation of the spiritual marriage. And we know, we've been told this numerous times, that from the side of Christ proceeds blood and water, which is the symbolism of the church, both the baptism and the Eucharist. Um, this is precisely why creation uh, happens in the order that it does. Uh, it says that the Lord God takes Adam and Adam falls into a deep sleep and the Lord takes his bride from his side. The, the rib just means side. 
and so this is a, uh, a prefiguration of what Christ does. He falls asleep, he dies, uh, and there from his side uh, is born a new life. There's a there's a beautiful um, there's a beautiful scene in the movie The Passion of Christ where uh, Christ is um, on his way carrying the cross and he's stumbling and he's falling and they have this image um, and you have to kind of hate Mel Gibson for this because uh, it's very emotional but um, you have this image where um, Saint Mary walks up to Christ and she says something along the line of um, this is enough, you've had enough, or this is, and he says what I think is the most beautiful thing in all that movie, which is, he says to her, behold, I make all things new. Uh, just such a powerful um, reality that, that sums up the whole narrative. Behold, I make all things new. Um, so here we have the icon of the bridegroom. Um, this here lies then the, the mystery, um, that power, that love, that faithfulness, that loyalty um, is expressed in the suffering servant. When Isaiah gets a glimpse of this by the Spirit, um, he's conflicted and he says, uh, when we see him, uh, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He's despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we did not esteem him. So this Christ, the bridegroom, as the image that conveys the mystery of God's power and love for us, challenges everything we know as humans. Um, God's relationship with the human person is interpersonal, but it's more than that. It's intimate, but it's more than that. It's a bond of love, and yet it's more than that. It's a relationship of loyalty and trust, but it's more than that. It is sacrificial and redemptive. So what do we learn from Christ as the bridegroom or this ideal spouse? What I absolutely love um, about this icon, I don't know if you um, can see it, but inside the, uh, the nimbus, or what you would call a halo, I guess, inside the nimbus, there's three letters, uh, the Omicron, Omega, and Nu, which spells on. Um, this takes you to the conversation that Moses has with God uh, during the dialogue with the burning bush where Moses says to God who do I say uh, sent me who do I tell them has sent me 
and God says to him, I am who I am, or I am the one who is. And so in Greek, this means I am the one who is. And this is why this icon has to challenge everything that you possibly could know or believe, is that the one who is, the God who Ezekiel describes, he says, I heard the flapping of the wings of the cherubim from outside of the courts of the temple. He was surrounded by myriads of angels and archangels. He sat and there were fire proceeding from his eyes. This all-powerful, this all-powerful God who's so majestic, um, the on, the one who is, who speaks to Moses and has to cover Moses because no eyes can see him, is the suffering servant, is the bridegroom of the church. And we say, here lies the mystery of Christ. Why is he a mystery? Because he reveals something that is otherness. It's otherworldly. And so here we have power that is manifested in love and forgiveness and sacrifice. Here we have power that is a servant. He comes to serve and wash the feet of his bride. And he says to Peter, no, Peter, you cannot refuse this. If I don't wash your feet, uh, you have no share with me. I have to um, saddle my waist and, and go down as a servant and wash your feet. And he says, this you will also do. But we'll get to that. Um, so for the Son of Man has not come to be served, but to serve and give himself a ransom for the many. And what we learn is uh, God's redemptive act is done through uh, a kenosis, an emptying, that God empties himself of his glory. He is both humble and he denies what is his by nature. So by nature, we know that God's all-powerful, um, God's beyond time, inconceivable, he's imperceptible, uh, right? We give the example of, of Moses who, who's unable to, to see God but sees the shadow or the back of God. But in Jesus Christ, the bridegroom, he's confined to space and time. He is seen. He communicates using words which for the most part are, are rejected by people. He denies his right to exercise his own will. This is really powerful. Uh, oftentimes in the scripture, Christ says, I do not seek my own will, but the will of the Father who sent me. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is uh, an absolute contradiction to what we know uh, in modern culture. Uh, to live a life where you do not practice your own will, but that of someone else, 
that you, you deny the certain privileges that you have by nature. I mean, this should bother you. It should disturb you. This shouldn't be okay. Um, for I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Now, there's a part of us that can stop here and say, beautiful, lovely. This is a love story, the best love story that has ever been told. And that would be true. But if you keep yourself out of the narrative, you abandon the greatest gift, the greatest calling, and the greatest mission that you could ever undertake in life. Because it is in this icon that we see what it meant that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. There's another implication that has to be a burden on your conscience, which is this. Christ says, as I have loved you, so you also must love one another. That's a problem. If you take this saying seriously, this is a huge problem. Christ's sacrifice is for sinners. And we must claim that as our identity. If we pretend that we are not sick, if we deny that we are sinners, this healing remedy will not be extended to us. So some of us may have this, um, what maybe in our modern world we call toxic shame, that we're unwilling to be seen in our sin, in our brokenness, and therefore we cannot experience love in the deepest parts of ourselves. Let me give you an example quickly, and I know I'm taking up a lot of time. Had Christ met the Samaritan and said to her, go call your husband. And the Samaritan said to him, actually, he's at work. And after that, he's going to pick up the children from the Montessori. Okay. And Christ then responded to her and said, Ah, I see. Well, I want to speak to you about the spirit which I want to give to you, that you may know, you may know God and worship God. And she had this experience with him, and then the narrative of the gospel continues. She goes back and she says, come, see a man, what? Who has told me all these things and has connected with who? The false me, the masked me, the, the me that I did not want to reveal. She is bountifully joyful only because there's a huge discrepancy between the disparity of where she lies and the greatness of where he is. This is why her mind is blown and she's, uh, rather than avoids people, she's going out and calling people and saying, come see a man who has told me all these things that I have ever done. And you know in the church she's called Saint Fotine, the illumined one or the enlightened one. Um, 
But it's only that she's able to say, uh, I have no husband. Uh, I hate to say this to you. I, the way I live, uh, not only am I a Samaritan, but I'm a, I'm a sinful person. And he says, you have said well. This is beautiful. Because the worst tragedy for us is not that we sin against God but that we deny that we sin against God. That's the worst tragedy. I don't think God's ever surprised that we sin. I, I think that when we have this redemptive, sacrificial love, but don't really trust it, I think there we begin to uh, step into the areas of great danger. Um, I want to just conclude um, and say that we live a spiritual relationship with the bridegroom uh, and await our physical unification. And as I have briefly mentioned, the greatest tragedy is not that we sin against God, but that we live as if we were not loved and redeemed by God. If we live as if we were not beloved, we were not the bride, we were not the reason of his earthly life, ministry, death, and resurrection. Uh, we will have um, uh, missed the essence of our life. So I will conclude with quoting, uh, quoting the litany prayer from the first uh, watch of the midnight hour, which says, O oh my soul, be mindful of that awesome day and wake up and light your lamp with the oil of joy, for you do not know when the voice will call upon you saying, uh, Behold, the bridegroom is coming. <laughs>